the front of the church is a great place to be, and I'm, I'm happy that our children like to be up here. And in fact, if more people wanted to sit up at the front, I've got a few more up here. That's great. I'm not all by myself, so that's great. Um, it's good to be in the house of the Lord and to hear from his word today. Let's pray as we enter. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that again, as always, it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and that by it, Lord, you can work in our hearts right now today. So I pray, Lord, bring a word of encouragement to us. Continue to speak through it, through it to us and to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you've already seen the slide behind me. By perseverance, the snail reached the ark. The great preacher who said that was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And uh, I've always loved that quote, and I found this slide with a little snail, and I thought it was pretty cute, but I thought it also is a message for us today, that even if you feel you maybe move as slow as a, as a snail, or rather the circumstances, or maybe even you feel like the Lord is working in your circumstances at a snail's pace, remember, by perseverance, that snail still was on the ark, wasn't it? Now, some of you may well identify with that snail personally. You started off on your Christian journey with great excitement and purpose. But now somewhere in the middle of that journey heavenward, it feels like it's just slow going and your final goal seems to be taking forever to achieve. And it's at times like that where often discouragement sets in. And there can be a temptation to sit down for a while or maybe even to quit altogether. Now I suspect that Joshua experienced moments like that as he set about the absolutely massive task of conquering Canaan and securing Israel's inheritance. And that's why we need to remember our first point from today's text is this. God not only calls us to start the life of faith, but to finish. Now, who here has any uh, projects you've started at home? Okay, I've got two hands up. How many of you have unfinished projects at home? <laughs> I still have two hands up, did you notice? Now, many of us are strong starters, but finishing can be a challenge. But in the life of faith, that's exactly what God calls us to do, to not only start, but to finish. Now, going on to Joshua, you'll recall that at the outset of the campaign, things moved at seemingly lightning speed. Of course, they'd been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years where it felt like literally they were going around in circles because they were. But then once that, that 40 years had passed, they come to the Jordan River. It was time to go into the land of Canaan to take the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Things are moving rapidly. First, they cross the Jordan River. Then they take the city of Jericho. The walls come tumbling down. Then following that, they take Ai, followed by the victory over the Amorite alliance in the day the sun stood still. And this all happens in the span of several weeks, maybe a month's time. It's happening like that. Everything's exciting. Everything's moving. Victory upon victory. Now, that also happens to be the part in the story where most of us check out. Because that's where all of the exciting miracles end. But did you know that following those initial victories, those first three there were another 30 major battles, not to mention minor skirmishes that Joshua and Israel had to fight. So chapter 12, verse 24 tells us 
that, in fact, Joshua defeated 31 kings in all. So even though things started out rapidly and, and there's those first three victories, you know, Jericho, Ai, the Amorite Alliance, we think that's kind of the story. But that's actually only the beginning of the campaign. Now, those subsequent battles to win Canaan are condensed into a very short narrative. And if you were to read through it, it takes about 15 minutes or so to read from the middle of chapter 10 through to the end of chapter 12. But let me just tell you, it took a very long time for those events to happen. Joshua chapter 11 verse 18 helps to clarify our understanding on this point where it says, Joshua waged war against all those kings for a long time. So although Joshua and Israel had achieved these stunning victories over the Canaanites during those first weeks of the campaign, it would require another seven years to fully complete, to win the war, and to secure their new land. And so for Joshua and Israel, final victory required both perseverance and tremendous endurance to not give up, to not give into complacency, to not say, hey, we've got enough land already, let's just stop. No, they had to continue on until they'd reached the finish line. Now in this next slide, you'll see a picture of a man named John Stephen Akwari. And it was in the 1968 Summer Olympic Games in Mexico City where the 26-mile marathon was the final event on the program and the Olympic Stadium was packed and buzzing with excitement as the Ethiopian runner named Mamo Waldi entered the stadium in first place. The crowd was packed. There was over 100,000 people cheering as he ran his final victory laps and then erupted into a standing ovation as he crossed that finish line in first place to claim the gold medal. But at the same time, unknown to the crowd, far back in the field was this runner named John Stephen Akwari of Tanzania. He had been considered a contender, a strong marathon runner. But one by one, he was being passed by the other runners until finally he was all alone in last place. You see, the problem was that it just passed the 18-mile mark. He had been tripped and had gone down hard. In that crash, he had seriously injured his shoulder and partially dislocated his knee. After being hastily treated and his knee bandaged by, by roadside medics, the officials of the race looked at his condition and urged him to retire. It's not worth your health. Just quit. But Akwari refused, and he continued on. Eight agonizing miles later, and a full hour after Mamawaldi had finished in first place, Akwari limped into the Olympic Stadium. All but a few thousand of the crowd had already gone home, leaving the stands mostly empty, as you can see in the picture. But undeterred, Akwari continued to hobble around the track at a painstakingly slow pace. The remaining spectators quickly realized that he was injured and they began to cheer him on, trying to will him forward until finally John Stephen Akwari collapsed over the finish line. It was later dubbed the greatest last place finish in history. It stands as one of the single most heroic and determined efforts in Olympic history to this very day. 
After the race, when asked by a reporter why he had not dropped out of the race after sustaining such a serious injury, Akwari replied, My country did not send me to start the race. They sent me to finish. In the same way, God did not call us to start the race of faith, or pardon me, to only start the race of faith. He's called us to finish, and to finish well. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, our call to worship, we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, think of that stand of spectators cheering us on, those witnesses who have gone before. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And so today, like John Stephen Akwari, we are called to run with perseverance the race that the Lord has marked out for each one of us. And so no matter how many times we might get tripped up or, or we fall into sin, we go down, we crash. No matter what, we get back up. We receive Christ's grace once more. We fix our eyes on him and we keep going. So today, no matter how banged up you are, no matter how painful it might be, and no matter how long it takes, it's always too soon to quit, my friends. Always too soon to quit. Keep going. The finish line is yet ahead. And so today, even if you're in last place or feel like you are like Akwari, don't lose heart. Keep going, because the great news is that your complete victory has already been won and secured by the Lord Jesus. Our salvation has already been achieved when Jesus went to the cross, when he rose victorious from the grave. It's already secure. And so all we have to do is keep going until the finish line. No matter how long it takes or how slow we're going, keep moving forward. And this is almost without fail the pattern of God's work in our lives as his children. When we first come to saving faith in Christ, there is always uh, an excitement and an undeniable sense of God's presence and power at work. Often, there's just undeniable signs or even some miraculous events to prove that, yes, he is truly here, he loves me, he is for me, and he is with me. And like Israel crossing that Jordan River at flood stage, when the waters all piled up, there was this undeniable sign that, yes, God is with us, making the way forward possible. Or when they watched the walls of Jericho fall down or saw the sun somehow stand still in the sky so they could win the battle that day. God's presence and power was just undeniable. But I want you to mark this from the story that it didn't always stay that way. In those next seven years, we're not recorded, we're not given any record of more miracles taking place. Yes, God still fought for Israel. Yes, they still won victory after victory. But now it was a slog. It was a determined effort, battle after battle, year after year, a grind as they had to take the full extent of the land. And so you see, God started with some mighty big miracles, but then he asked them to persevere in faith afterwards, even when his presence and power weren't always so obvious. 
And in the same way in our Christian journey, God's resurrection power and his daily presence by the Spirit always abides and remains. But we don't always see it displayed in bright flashes every day, do we? But often when we persevere, we look back and we see it over the long haul. You see, God calls his people to persevere faithfully over a long period of time. And though we often can't see it, God is always at work. The great Apostle Paul said near the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And here's the really good news for us. And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You see, the Apostle Paul was confident that in enduring to the end of the race, a crown of righteousness was waiting for him right across that finish line. The Lord was going to give it to him. And then by the Spirit, he had the assurance to say, and not only for me, there are many more coming after who have the same promise. All who long for Christ's appearing, all who love the Lord, this is our promise that we can hold on to as well. And so remember, God did not call you to only start the race of faith. He's called each of us to finish. Now returning to our text in Joshua 11, we see number two, when new problems arise, the same God provides. When new problems arise, the same God provides. Now if we move on to the next slide, here we will try to make sense of this very confusing text with all the long names that dad did a good job plowing through. These aren't exactly the sort of names that we're used to, right? So we see here a a battle map, and this will give you some sense of these confusing names. It's in the northern part of the land of of Canaan, modern-day or ancient and modern-day Israel. It's north of the Sea of Galilee. So you can see the Sea of Galilee is right here on the map. And uh, right here is where the battle takes place at Merom. Uh, But the kingdoms that have joined together in this alliance to fight against Israel have come from all over the north. So we see these arrows. They're coming from here. They're coming from there. They're coming from here. They're coming from the north. They're coming from there. So they've all come from literally every direction to join together into this massive army. Chapter 11, verse 4 says this. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And so here we see Joshua is facing a new and even bigger problem than before. If the Amorite alliance was big, this one makes them look like child's play in comparison. And we read that Jabin, king of Hazor, which verse 10 tells us that the city of Hazor and its king Jabin, they were the the top dogs of this northern kingdom. They were the top of this confederation of city-states. And so he calls upon the alliance of these city-states to gather together and to combine their forces into one massive army described as being as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The first century Jewish historian by the name of Josephus He writes that the combined forces of the Canaanites numbered 300,000 foot soldiers, 100,000 cavalry, and 20,000 chariots. Now, in ancient times, having cavalry and chariots was the modern equivalent of having armored tanks and vehicles. So, in addition to having numerical supremacy, 
The Canaanite army also enjoyed a massive technological advantage over the Israelite army, which had no cavalry and no chariots. All they had were foot soldiers. But if Joshua was fearful of the size of the army and the armaments of the army that he was facing, it was immediately offset by God's promise directly following in verse 6. Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Now much earlier God had promised to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy Chapter 20, verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so here we see God is reminding Israel of something very important. Remember, I brought you up from Egypt. That should trigger some memories for them. How did God bring us up from Egypt? With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, what did he do to Pharaoh? Remember the Passover. Remember the Red Sea. I did that for you. I brought you up out of Egypt. But now you're facing a new gigantic problem. But remember, new problems arise. The same God provides. He was the same in delivering them from Egypt. He says, trust me, I will deliver you in the present. And so, we see here God does just that, without hesitation. Verse 7 tells us, So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. Now, although this is undoubtedly one of the bloodiest and most violent of the battles in the entire conquest, think of it, there's this massive army of 300,000 uh, plus troops there's horses, there's chariots. This is a chaotic battle scene. It's strung out over a vast plain and mountainous terrain. And there's the historian in me wants to say, how did the battle go? What happened? What were the maneuvers? The only maneuver we're given is that Joshua clearly launched a surprise attack because it says he came against them suddenly. Obviously, they were feeling confident. Look how many of us there are. Look how few of them there are. They're thinking, there's no way they're attacking us first. Joshua seizes the initiative at the Lord's command. He attacks suddenly, taking them by surprise. And clearly, the Lord is fighting for them. We can only guess at how this happened. Maybe they went into confusion. Maybe they just turned and started running. Who knows? But all we know is Joshua and Israel, just as God had said, won a massive victory over an army that outnumbered them countless of times over with chariots, horses, the whole bit. It was no obstacle. And so we see, verse 8, And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them, pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Misraph Maim, and to the valley of Mizpah in the east, until no survivors were left. That's it. The most epic battle in Israel's history Two verses. There it is. Verse 9 tells us the aftermath. The victory is complete. Joshua obeys God's commands, and he hamstrings the enemy's horses, and he burns their chariots. Now, on the face of that, that final instruction seems kind of unreasonable, doesn't it? I mean, after all, Israel was seriously outgunned. So why not take those armaments for themselves? Why not take those horses? Why not take those chariots? Make themselves stronger. Well, God knew the danger 
was that the Israelites would put their confidence in those horses and chariots rather than in him. In Psalm chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, King David, many generations later, declared, Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see, by obeying God's command to the letter, he hamstrings the horses, he destroys and burns the chariots, Joshua demonstrates that he knows where his victory came from. And it was not going to come from having better weapons. It was not going to come from horses or chariots. It wasn't going to come from his skill as a general. It was not going to come from the bravery of his soldiers. Joshua knew victory comes only from the Lord. So how about you? How about us? When new problems arise, who or what do you put your trust in to give you victory? You see, the fact is, we often turn to God only when we think the situation is hopeless. You know, someone put it this way. As long as we can think up possible answers, we depend upon our human ingenuity, or just luck, or coincidence. Then only once we've exhausted all other alternatives and we've got just nowhere else to turn, okay, God, we'll give you a chance. But how much better if we turn to God first, no matter what? We turn to him before we turn to our own skill or cunning or ingenuity. Because remember, it is the Lord who goes before us. He prepares the way. He overcomes the opposition. He enables us to take new ground for our good and for his ultimate glory. So remember, when new problems arise, it is the same Lord who provides. Now our third and final point. Resist the temptation to not finish God's assignment. Resist the temptation to not finish. Following this tremendous victory, there must have been a strong temptation for the Israelites to settle down in the areas they'd already captured. They'd already defeated two massive armies. They'd taken this huge amount of land. They, you know, for them personally, they didn't need all this land. You know, they must have thought about oh, look at these vineyards we could start tending to. Look at these things we could enjoy. But all of that would have to wait for later because the job was not yet done. And verses 10 to 14 tell us that following their victory, Joshua and the Israelites turned right around to capture and destroy all of the enemy's cities whose armies had just attacked them. So think about this. Look at this map. These armies came from all directions to come and fight them here. Now, having defeated all of their armies, these cities are relatively defenseless. And so Joshua and his men simply backtrack in every direction. They go here, they go there, they go here, they go there, they go here, they go there. And they just circle back around and take and destroy each and every one of these cities. And my friends, that didn't just happen in a week. That took a long time to go through and take all of those cities. They followed through. And verse 15 concludes by stating, As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all the Lord commanded Moses. Now what a glowing commendation of Joshua's relentless perseverance to not let up, to not let his foot off the gas. He was going to finish the work that God had given him to do no matter what. 
In fact, when we read through Scripture, Joshua is one of the most consistent and solid men of God you'll find anywhere. But as dedicated and determined as Joshua was, he wasn't perfect. But that's part of the point, isn't it? Even that great lawgiver, Moses, wasn't perfect. He also had moments of failure. And the courageous general Joshua wasn't perfect either. Now, this is where we have to recognize, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect. None of us are. There's only one perfect one, that is the Lord Jesus. And that's why we need the grace of the Lord Jesus so desperately. Because no matter how many things we get right, we inevitably get something wrong. We sin. We fall short of God's perfect holiness. And we can't make up for it either. As sinners, we're simply incapable of it. Only Jesus, the perfect one, is capable of paying the price of our sins. And praise the Lord, he did that by dying on the cross for each one of us in our place, taking the punishment our sin deserved on his own, on his own shoulders. He did that when we couldn't. And so now it begs the question, what was Joshua's one tiny failure? Well, in verses 21 and 22, tucked right in the middle of Joshua's many accolades, we read this. Verse 21. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron to Beer and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. Verse 22. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. Now, you're still wondering, where is the failure in this? All right, now let's go to the next slide. In this slide, this is an ancient carving known as the Victory Still of Naram Sin. And it celebrates the triumph of King Naram Sin, who is depicted here as a giant. You can see he's head and shoulders above the enemies who he is killing. Now, of course, many historians will say, well, it's just they like to inflate their egos by carving themselves as being bigger than everyone else. But the truth is, antiquity is filled with references to giants. The Bible, of course, talks about giants. And in fact, in this verse, it just talked about giants, the Anakites. The Anakites were the race of giants that so terrified the original Israelite spies in Canaan that it was the sight of those Anakites that caused them to report, they are giants and we were like grasshoppers in their sight. And so now we read that strong and courageous Joshua, he leads Israel's men to victory even over these giant warrior Anakites. So where's the oversight? Well, we read at the end of verse 22, some escaped and he did not pursue them to finish the job. Those surviving giants settled in the cities of Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So again, what's the big deal? Joshua still won, right? Well, yes, he did in the short term, but God was looking long term. He had commanded that these enemies needed to be tracked down and utterly annihilated. This was the Lord's command to Moses, given to Joshua. Joshua needed to see this through. But what Joshua failed to recognize was that by him not pursuing them to eradicate them was not about him or his current generation. It was about future generations yet to be born. Because you see, each of those cities were Philistine cities, which you'll recognize as later becoming Israel's arch enemies. Continual thorn in their side were the Philistines. And in fact, it was at Gaza that Samson was defeated. 
not by soldiers, but by his lust for a beautiful Philistine, Philistine woman. Then it was at Ashdod that the Israelites foolishly took the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines and were defeated and the Ark captured. And finally, who famously came from the city of Gath? Does anyone know? Goliath, right? Goliath of Gath. Each one of these were the result of Joshua not rooting out the Anakites to the very end, which would have involved defeating and annihilating these Philistine cities. And so consider how things would have been very different if Joshua had pursued them and completely finished the assignment as God had commanded. Now in the same way, I believe that in many, many of the things that God calls us individual, individually and collectively to do and to be faithful in, we will never see the full outcome of them in our lifetime. Joshua never could have imagined that after defeating most of the Anakites, that his small oversight to not hunt down every last one of them would cause such untold trouble for future generations. And in the same way, we can't fully know how our obedience or disobedience will affect future generations. But God does. God knows And so that's why even if we don't understand why, why do I need to obey to the last letter? Why do I need to go to the the final thing that I've already won the battle? Why do I need to go further? But if God says go a little further, even if we don't understand why, we need to seek obedience in even the small things because one day we will know the full extent of what our obedience or disobedience achieved. Because I want you to just imagine... One day in in glory, someone you've never met comes up to you and simply says, thank you for being faithful. Because of your faithfulness, I am here. Think about that. How incredible that our actions today have ripple effects for generations. So what are you facing today? What assignment has God given you personally to do? Don't give up. Persevere to the very end because the crown of righteousness awaits the faithful and only heaven will fully reveal the impact of our perseverance to the finish line for his glory and for our good. Amen. Heavenly Father, today I pray for anyone present today who needed just a little extra encouragement today to persevere. That you've given them an assignment and it's getting heavy. And it's feeling like they're not getting anywhere. And I just pray for them right now, Lord. Encourage them, fill them with your spirit to persevere, to keep going, to not quit no matter what. To see it through to the very end. Because, Lord, you delight in blessing and rewarding the faithful. Those who persevere, even when it seems like it's going nowhere, simply because you said... And so I pray, Lord, that we would be marked as your people, as a faithful and persevering people. Not ones who would grow weary and lose heart and give up, but instead those who would double down and keep going because we know that our faithfulness to you in the end will always be rewarded and that you will bless us even when we can't make sense of why we're called to obey. You do. You know the purpose. And Lord, we know that one day future generations could even be blessed by it. And so we ask that we would be marked this way 
Help us in this end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.